Welcome back to episode two of the Hard Call Ministries podcast. We've made it this far. We've got the first episode down, and we are back for round two. I am one of your hosts, Mike Moriarty, and with me is my good friend and brother in Christ, Mike Quintus. Mike, how are you doing, my friend? How is it going, Brochini? It goes well. I am uh, seriously excited that we have made it to episode two. It's uh, good to see the ball is rolling, and uh, I'm definitely excited for the topic we have today. Last episode, we talked about we were going to be jumping straight into the deep end and going with the doctrines of grace, or the more widely known as the five points of Calvinism. And uh, we kind of gave a brief rundown uh, last time about what they are. And, uh, you know, I think we can, we can do a quick run-through again right now. The, the big topic of debate that's been uh, around recently, which it comes up from time to time, it seems to, to have a season almost, is Calvinism. Uh, controversy that surrounds it, particularly in the areas of uh, limited atonement and election word election uh, elicits a lot of strong reactions and a lot of opinions and everything. And yeah. uh, I thought that that would be a good thing for us to jump into. You know, we kind of covered that on the last episode, so I, I don't want to beat that horse too much. So ultimately, Calvinism comes down to the five points, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And we're going to be dealing with, uh, what did I say last episode, the tip of the tulip, the T? That's right, total depravity. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to hit with the tip of the tulip and go straight to total depravity. And uh, I, I think it would help to start with just a, a definition. And uh, I'm going to use the... Uh, Definition given in uh, John MacArthur's Biblical Doctrine. It's uh, sort of his systematic theology. It's a great book to have. I, w- I would recommend it for for anyone. Uh, it will uh, it will of course for the our Reformed friends. It's going to have a, a dispensational uh, lean on it, and uh, so you know there's going to be things in there that I don't agree with. But uh, John MacArthur was the first real solid teacher I got in got into, and uh, this systematic theology is a great resource for anybody to have. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes for that. But the definition that he gives uh, in in his book, that total depravity is uh, the idea that human beings begin life with all aspects of their nature corrupted by the effects of sin. Thus, all their actions will lack totally pure motives. This does not mean, however, that they are as wicked as they can possibly be. So, you know, the the earth is not filled with 8 billion Hitlers, is basically what that is saying. But it is saying that everybody is in some form or fashion, well, in one form and fashion, sin has corrupted our nature. And uh, and that's where we're we're operating from. You know, some people would call it uh, a sin nature. It's, It's a corrupting of who we are, as we are made in the image of God. It's not a loss of the image of God, but the image of God has been corrupted in us. And uh, that is what the T is. It's also referred to, uh, I believe, by John MacArthur and others as the doctrine of absolute inability because of our inability to choose God because of this corrupting of our nature. And that corruption has far-reaching implications when it comes to salvation, with how we are saved and how we come to salvation and what is required for us to come to salvation. So that's that's the baseline of what total depravity is. Why don't we look at some biblical support for this doctrine here? Well, it'd be bad if we went anywhere else, right? <laughs> I mean, you know... We could probably find some resources in Dr. Seuss um, if we attended certain churches, uh, but that's that's not how we roll. So, um, so, so real simply, um, you've got Jesus talking to, um, I believe he's talking to the disciples in uh, John fourteen seventeen, mm-hmm. and and it's kind of nestled in there. In fact, uh, let's back it up to sixteen. So he says. Um, 
uh, and I would ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, talking about the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not uh, see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Um, so, so very clearly says right there, the world is unable to uh, receive him. Yeah, and uh, and that's that again harkens back to that inability. They they can't they don't see him because they can't see him. You know, no one no one is seeking after God because they can't. That that idea that there's there's seekers out there. There's I think there's a biblical way of looking at that. People who are seeking, if somebody is is quote unquote seeking. Because the Holy Spirit is moving in them, it's not you right. know these people are they're you know they're backpacking through Europe trying to find themselves and trying to find God. That's not that's not how it works. Our own human will and volition is not capable of seeking out God on our own. If we are seeking, that's because the Holy the internal the, the Holy Spirit is working in us to bring us to Christ. We, you know we're not out looking for Him because we're bored and we want to figure stuff out. So yeah, that's absolutely right. right. Yeah, if we look at Romans chapter 3, it talks about that we cannot understand him or seek him. It's kind of a repeating there. I think start probably start with uh, uh, verse 10. So Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, so it's concrete, it's already in the word of God, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Going on from there, verse 12, it says, All have turned aside, together they become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. So this is, this is showing the all-encompassing nature of the depravity of mankind. It, it, it touches every part of our nature, and it's, it's inescapable. It's not something we can't wash it off, you know? Right, right. And, and it's something that's inborn in us. So... There's a lot of thought out there that um, you're not bad until you do something bad. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it, if not in, in this episode, but, you know, uh, later episodes. You know, God says clearly, um, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So this idea that yeah. you have some impact upon your composition if you will, and it's like, well, I didn't do anything bad, and it's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work like that. It it's handed down. Romans five twelve. Therefore, mm-hmm. just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so desperate to all uh, men, uh, because all sinned. You know, so um, it it total depravity is our inheritance by by our very nature. And this is, this, this is from the womb. It's not something that, you know, when you're born and the first time you, you know, throw a toy and hit your sibling in the face, it's like, oh, you sinned, you know. And I think that's, that's, kind, of a, that's kind of a Catholic <laughs> yeah. view of it, isn't it, isn't it Mike? Um, is, that, is that how that works? It's you got to balance the books? Well, yeah, there, there is a balancing of the books. You, you have to be under Roman Catholic theology they they have uh, baptismal regeneration so when you're baptized you're cleansed of all sin but then you have to you have to start weighing between mortal sin and venal sin venal sin is bad and you need to confess that and take care of that but mortal sin actually knocks you out of positional grace so that you're you're condemned and you're hovering over hell again and uh and it's one of one of the major issues that uh is found in Roman Catholic doctrine is that you don't have an assurance of salvation, which uh, which is actually something we're going to probably talk about in, in this and coming episodes in, in the doctrines of grace. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 who you are in your nature positionally before God until or unless you are in Christ. You know the the, the verse you read, Romans five twelve. Just uh, one uh, as through one man sin entered into the world. Yeah. Adam was our federal head. In, in, in covenantally, he represented himself and all who come after him. And when he fell, we all fell with him. That is why we needed a second and perfect Adam, who is Christ, to come 
and fulfill everything that the first Adam failed to do. And that, that, that really falls into covenantal theology and everything, which, you know, that might be something we get into later on down the road. But that, that's the thing a lot of people fail to understand is that when Adam fell, we all fell with him. It's not a matter of us doing something, you know, in, in sin, my mother conceived me. You know, that's not speaking of how the, the, the you know, David was conceived. It was right. when David was conceived, he was already a sinner. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's who we are outside of Christ. Just, just as it affects that, it also affects our mind. Uh, st- sticking with Romans, Romans 8, 7 says, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. I mean, I don't ha- I don't know if you can find a more condemning verse than that, but it Romans 8 7, Paul lays out clearly our brain cannot reach an intellectual point where we're like, okay, I'm gonna go find God. Uh, it, it says it can it is not even able to do so. It's not on the table. Right. So this is another one of those synergism versus monergism things. Is it us working with God, or is it God working in us to accomplish it? Right. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting. I heard a uh, uh, I heard a, I heard a reference <laughs> this past week that um, I've, I've known and I just haven't heard it in a long time. An individual at the church was was discussing with with uh, I don't know if it was a coworker somewhere else. They were saying. Um, this person was just, you know, talking about how they they didn't see the sin in their life and they didn't see the bad things that they were doing and all this other stuff. And the guy looked at him, he said, well, say you have a dead body and you drop a 50 pound weight on a dead body, you know, does it, does it feel the weight? And the person says, well, no, of course not. It's dead. And he looked at him and said, exactly. You know, that's, 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 that's an old, that's an old <laughs> reference. I'm sure plenty of people have heard it. And it, it's always uh, it's always a good one. It, you know, I, I always enjoy the interaction when 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 you can share that with somebody, and it's it's a oh type moment. So if you're spiritually dead, you are unable to choose. Um, and yeah, and Ephesians uh, Ephesians two gives a really good example of that. If you want to suffer with me, reading through this. Um, it's, Suffer yeah, away. it says, uh, and this is this is LSB. Just just for our listeners, I I, I really love the LSB. So everything that I read out of that is going to be LSB, unless I say otherwise. It says, "And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom." We all also formally conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, within ourselves, by our nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, the best thing you can hear in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I mean, that's that's just, that's so powerful because yeah. it's speaking to, um, it, it, uh, this is actually speaking to the, the, the church at Ephesus and letting them know you were dead. You used to walk according to, you know, to the world, but now you are alive. And, and, you know, um, that total depravity, it's like, it's been negated. Your dead flesh has been made alive. You now take on that righteousness that Christ gives you. And so you are able to see, um, through the grace that was provided. You know, that's extremely powerful. Yeah. uh Ephesians, the opening of Ephesians 2, I think, is one of my most loved sections of Scripture, and especially because of those two, those two words in verse 4, but God. Uh, I mean, it's because it's, you're going through the first three verses, and you see how bad it was, 
and then God breaks in and he saves, sovereignly saves you from, from your death. And, uh, you know, you, you got to go to, uh, Lazarus, right? Uh, Lazarus was a walking or I guess you'd say not walking example of, of what it is to be regenerated and saved. He was absolutely dead. He was dead for three days. Yeah. Uh, they told Jesus, don't open the tomb. Yeah, but, he's, been, he's been stinking up. But Lord, he stinks. Yeah. Yeah. They, they knew what I was mean, coming, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it makes me, and it makes me think of, uh, an often repeated thing, uh, by, uh, Stephen Lawson is, uh, that a dead, a dead man isn't good for anything except stinking up a room. And that's, that's what this is hitting at is, is a dead man contributes nothing to being raised from the dead except being dead. And even then you're not really doing any, you're not doing anything. Right. So, uh, so yeah, d- dead men cannot save themselves. And I know a lot of people look at that and it's like, well, that's, that's just one analogy that is used. It also talks about how we're in darkness or we're blind and all this. But I, the, the language here is definitive. It says you were dead. It's, the, it's not like you were, it was like you were dead. It says you were dead. Uh, this, the, it's, it, it's not even analogical. Spiritually, you're dying. Well, and it, to me here, it also harkens back to, all the way back to the garden. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't drop dead under the tree, but they died. Right. They spiritually yeah. died in that moment. So this it's 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 using almost the same kind of language as what was used in the garden. You were spiritually dead, and God raised you to life. So yeah, absolutely. With that, we can look at some of the arguments that are against Calvinism and uh, luckily for this portion of the show, there's no shortage of arguments against Calvinism. They kind of seem to be coming from all sides. And I kind of, in preparation for this episode, I went looking around the uh, the internet looking for various articles and, and, and refutations of Calvinism. And uh, I, I didn't look for academic journals because I know those aren't really available to, to everybody. So I was trying to just find some of the average Joe articles that are out there. And I found one out there uh, and it's entitled five reasons. Calvinism is a false doctrine. I mean, that's a pretty strong uh, charge to make and it's not the first time I've heard it. Uh, and I'll have a link in the show notes to this article. If you want to go check it out. Uh, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be fair and, and, and open about what I'm saying. And I don't want to be accused of misrepresenting uh, the author of the article, but it's written by an individual named Keith Re- uh, either Rivas or Rivas, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, so uh, I apologize. I'm sure he's never going to hear this, but so there's a lot of, uh, of arguments that are out there against Calvinism. And of course, right now we're really dealing with total depravity, and his article goes through all five points, and he, he makes a lot of the common arguments that you find. So I wanted to stick with his article, and he also brings up some points that I haven't heard other people use, so I thought it would be kind of a good jumping off point. And uh, one of the accusations, or I don't know if you want to call it an accusation or so much as a critique, is that with the idea of Calvinism, it leaves you in the dark about whether or not you're saved. Now, this kind of touches on all five points, uh, so I kind of wanted to, to, to lead off with that as we're moving into this, because we're talking about refutations against Calvinism. And one of them is this idea that you can't know you're saved then. If you're elect, well, then how do you know? Uh, really good examples. I remember when I was in high school, I was in high school English, and we were reading something written by the Puritans. I can't even remember. And uh, the teacher was talking about how the Puritans believed in predestination, which is election. Of course, back then, I didn't know what any of that was. And the way it was explained to me is that the Puritans believed that only certain people were going to go to heaven, but they didn't know who. So they tried to to do works and get evidence to find out that they were going to make it into heaven. And I was like, man, that's bogus. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't know, so I got to work and then try to figure it out. I mean, that stinks. If that's really the way it is, I can understand why people wouldn't be down for Calvinism. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is we can know. We can know we're saved, and and Scripture is actually pretty clear about it. Uh, you know, Jesus Himself says you're going to know who they are by their fruits, and that goes for those who are saved and those who are unsaved. Faith produces 
spiritual fruit. But John also explicitly says in 1 John 5.13, these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. It's not a maybe. So the Bible doesn't leave you hanging about whether or not you're saved. It shows you how. And uh, the doctrines of grace are no exception. The doctrines of grace simply put, uh, it puts like a, a concrete foundation under your salvation because you're not the one that's in control of it. You know, it's all about the sovereignty of God and your salvation. So, so the, this idea that you can't know, uh, it's, it's an accusation against Calvinism, but there's no biblical basis for making that that accusation because the Bible specifically states that you can have assurance of salvation. And personally, uh, I'd be, I'd be scared to death because the thing is, is if you don't believe in, in the, the, the P in the tool of the perseverance of the saints, then you don't have any assurance. You're, you're out there in, like we mentioned a little while ago in, in the Catholic realm of things where if you committed a mortal sin and you didn't do penance for that and you die, well, you're out. You don't even get to go to purgatory for that. Purgatory, at least, you would you would be able to, to pay off time and eventually get to heaven. If you commit a mortal sin and you don't pay for that, you're out forever. Right. Yeah, which is terrifying to me. It's the same in uh, it's the same in Islam. There's there's no assurance anywhere that you're going to make it to heaven. Uh, that's terrifying to me. I'd be afraid yeah. to step outside of my door. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and, I, and I'm and I'm glad you uh, brought that up about Islam because I was about to say the same thing because you know there is yeah. there's no guarantee for them, you know. So yeah, they're they're essentially uh, winging it. Yeah, and I, I'm sure I'm sure one of the other arguments is you know aren't you aren't you just following Calvin and you're not you're not following the Bible and you're going to um, extra biblical resources and whatnot, um, but but. What, what you'll see as we go through, you know, the, the entire acronym for TULA is that every, every single element um, has a basis in Scripture. And I said this last time, and, you know, I'd like to reiterate it here. Once you start going down this road and you realize all the biblical uh, support that, that these doctrines of grace have, if you choose to start peeling them apart then it really um, reduces the Bible to absurdity, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and, and, and there's not, you know, we, we just read through a, a, a series of, of verses. So John, John six forty four is not the only verse, you know, uh, for uh, total depravity. You know, we, you know, we, we just looked at what was that a half dozen verses in a, in a paragraph, you know? Oh Yeah. And there's more. Uh, yeah, and there, and but there's more. It slices, it dices, it hands out total depravity. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so so it, it's really found all throughout Scripture. And I, I really love what you what you read. You know, uh, Mike, when you said um, in in Romans, there there is none good, none seek after him. You know, because that that yeah. echoes the Psalms too. Mm-hmm. This is something that was all throughout the the Israelites' history. You know, they, they understood it to be the very nature of man. I agree. Yeah, and like, and like bringing up John 644, I, I want to, it's interesting because in, in this article that, that, that we're citing, it, it says that the Calvinist perspective is derived from reading John 6 verse 44. Now, I don't know if this author is making the, the claim that that's the only only verse we, we use, or if that's that's the that's the single jumping off point, or if that's just the one that he's honing in on. You know, I don't I don't want to try and put words in his mouth, but uh, John chapter six verse forty four says, "No one can come to me." This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, uh, on the, on the surface. It's pretty cut and dry of what that thing says. No one can come to me, Jesus Christ, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that that pretty much encapsulates all of Calvinism, all of uh, the doctrines of grace in that one verse. That yeah, you you can't do anything until God brings you to Him. So well, it's, um, and and some something else that that's really powerful in that you know it, in um, 
in, in 45, if you take it the next one, it, and, you know, says, you know, and they, they shall be taught by God, you know? So, so what, I mean, it's, yeah. so what you have here is you have a, a beautiful picture of the Trinity, you know, working in concert. No one yeah. comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then they're taught by the spirit. You know, this is a, this is, um, this is not an external teaching. This is an internal teaching. You know, so it really yeah, shows exactly. the concert of the Trinity working to salvation. Yeah. You know, that leads into, it leads into uh, another thing put forward in, in this article and by other people. It's that if we are given a choice, which when you look in the Gospels, you constantly see a call. You constantly see the, the, the call being made repent, turn from your sins, and turn to God. So it's asking if we are given a choice, doesn't that mean we have the ability to do it on our own? And uh, I would say no. Even logically, you, you can see you can see instances in the world now where you can be given a choice and you don't have the ability to respond. You don't have the ability to fulfill what is required of you. You know, Mike, you, I, I worked with you. You know, we used to work at a shipyard with aircraft carriers. If I told you the only way I was going to let you out of the dry dock was you needed to pick up the aircraft carrier that's sitting in it, well, you've been given a condition. Yeah. Does that mean you have the ability to do it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so we can we can see real-world examples where, no, you don't have to have the ability to be able to, to uh, do something yeah. simply because someone has given you the choice. Yeah. And that's a... That's a that's a that's a hundred thousand tons of impossibility right there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and the thing is, yeah, when you look in Scripture, there's there's a choice that is given to you, and uh, you know a lot of people turn to John three sixteen, and uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go there real quick on my computer, and uh, everybody knows John three sixteen. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And uh, that, that, that whosoever or that whoever trips a lot of people up. And the problem with that is, is it's English. And a lot of people tend to not worry about the fact that the Bible was not originally written in English. Now, we can get into the debates about, oh, well, it's been translated a million times and it's not reliable. Yeah, that's bupkis. That's not true. If, if, if you need any assurance on the reliability of the scripture that we have today, watch anything by James White. That's right. He, he sets it straight that's right. in very clear terms. I think, he's, I think he gives the best arguments and the easiest to understand explanations of why we can rely on today's translations, but yeah, that that would be a, that would be another really good series for us because because um, oh, yeah. uh, I, I listen to James White or um, oh Apologia Studios. Um, I can see his face. Who is it? Um, Jeff Durbin. Jeff Durbin. Yeah, when they when they do yeah. when they do their street evangelism and somebody goes directly to that they say oh well the bible's been you know translated so many different times that no one really knows what it said to begin with and the first thing they say is yeah. oh you don't understand the difference between translation and transmission yeah you know yeah. but that yeah yeah exactly we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll make a note for a future series to go over that because it's 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 really important to understand how, how you can know um what the what the bible says is true how you can um, understand uh, critical analysis of text. So anyway, sorry, Absolutely. down a rabbit yeah. trail. <laughs> no, no, oh no, hey, there's going to be a lot of rabbit trails. Trust me. Yeah, but yeah, so so, but yeah, here it, it when you look at it and you understand what is actually being said, it's not saying the whosoever. It's saying all the believing. So God so loved the world in this instance, and this is going to have to require some, some more exegesis that we don't have time for, but the world, it, it, it's not speaking of every single individual because he's make, Christ is making distinctions after this. So it can't be everybody when he starts making distinctions, but it says that who, all the believing will not perish but have eternal life. That is what is being said in the Greek there. So, so 
and and the thing is, is if you go down even further, you go down to three eighteen. It says those who do not believe have been judged already. Mike, is it isn't the uh, people people who take John three sixteen out of out of its actual statement? Um, isn't that uh, don't don't we do it similarly in uh, in Christmas time too? You know uh, when when they when they quote what the angels said. You know, uh, uh, peace on earth and goodwill to men. That that's not what it says. It, yeah, that's not what it peace says. Peace on it's, earth it's, and um, goodwill and or, or, um, and and goodwill to those with whom he is pleased. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I heard. I heard. I heard a really good way of look of of translating that. That probably the best translation of that is peace to those on whom God's favor falls. Yeah, exactly. Which. Which would be the elect who are God's people, right? But it's interesting when uh, you know when we were looking back at um, was it in John six forty four was speaking of no one can come to me unless the Father draws me. In uh, in this article that we're going off of, it, it talks about the people that are being drawn, and uh, this is this is really where it gets a little weird. Uh, I want to quote the article real quick says, Jesus makes it clear that we cannot come to him without being drawn. Later in the Gospel of John, we find, I'm still quoting the article here, we find that Jesus ascending into heaven is what will draw all men to him. And then he puts John 12, 32 here. And I think this is where he makes an error in interpretation and, and, and exegeting this. John 12, 32 is Jesus speaking, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And the problem here is, is the uh, the author of this article is making the assumption that here he is speaking of the ascension that we find at the end of, of the gospel stories, of when Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, and that that is what is going to draw all men to him. But that that, that really can't be the case. Uh, in this instance, it's also speaking of his crucifixion. So uh, the thing is, is throughout this article, I find issues where nowhere is it talking about this is where this is what is going to draw people to Christ. Um, if you read the next verse, it says, but he was saying this, this is 1233, to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. So he's not talking about his ascension. He's talking about his being lifted up onto the cross. You got you got to love it when the Bible does that though. It's like it gives you a verse, and then immediately after it said it said, "But he was saying da 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 da." Yeah. But then the the, yeah. the people who want to misquote it, they say, "Well, no, 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 no. you just got to stop before that verse," you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, further, he he goes on to say it's and quoting the article again. Quote: It's at the point of the ascension that all men are now drawn with the ability to choose to follow or choose to rebel. Now, it does not say anything like that in any of the texts that speak of Jesus' ascension. So when it says, speaks of his ascension, he goes up into heaven. I mean, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. It doesn't say he went up. And when he did that, now we have this cool ability about whether or not we can come to him. It doesn't say that. So... Trying to be fair, I, I think that, that this is just a poor interpretation of Scripture at this point. I think this is a an instance of tradition, traditional theology informing interpretation rather than interpretation informing theology. Um, and I, I, I think perhaps this author came to this text with the understanding, the, the preconceived understanding, that you have the ability to choose God on your own, and now we have to look at the text and figure out how that's the case. Um, clearly, John twelve thirty two is not speaking of Jesus' ascension, and Jesus' ascension also does not grant the ability to rebel or obey him. Um, so there, there are some serious implications there. Moving on from there, it, it, it begs the question then, doesn't God want all people to be saved? And, uh, and this is a text that comes up quite a bit, and I'm going to bring it up real quick so I can read it. And it's in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I'll go ahead and read it. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says, uh, 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And uh, this, this verse, a lot of people that are, argue against election and uh, total depravity and everything, they come to this section and it's like, well, look, it says right here that God said he wants everyone to come to repentance. Now, there's not enough time in this episode to really go into this verse. We probably need two or three episodes to go into this. But the one thing I would point out is when Peter is here, he's using words like you. So who's the you? Well, the assumption that is made by a lot of people is that he's talking to the whole world. Well, that's not the case because these epistles were written to believers. So the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who is you? You are the believers. Not wishing for any of who? The believers to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what this is saying is that the reason the Lord is tarrying in his return is so that all of the elect will come to salvation through the grace of Jesus Christ and through his atoning work. And when that is done and complete, well, then that, that is when the rest of the es- eschatological implications come into play and, and we get to, you know, Revelation uh, 21 and 22. So this is not speaking of God hoping that everybody will come in one day. And uh, that's, that's what we'll get into that when we get to limited atonement in a couple episodes. But, you know, this, this doesn't make God out to be a tyrant. He does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. It says so in, in Ezekiel thirty three eleven. He takes no pleasure in the death and destruction of the wicked. You know, he's not some capricious tyrant who, who is, is cackling over those who are cast into the fire. That is simply not the case. Um, but, but this verse, 2 Peter 3, uh, 8 and 9, this is speaking of believers. It's not an all-encompassing universal opportunity. And that comes back to what we're talking about in this episode, and it's because of the total depravity of the human mind and uh, our faculties. We cannot come to God on our own. So that, that kind of segues right into God's foreknowledge, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah. there, there, there is an elect, and, oh man, um, Mike, are we, are we going to get into a double predestination? Oof. Another uh, time? Well, uh, another time. <laughs> another yeah, time. We'll, we'll, have to, so, we'll have to get on that. Yeah, so so when we're talking about the elect too, we're not we're not talking about how and, and, and this is kind of um, the way I understand double predestination. God didn't, you know, um, sit up on high one day and have counsel with himself and you know, count out the beans of people and say, Okay, all of these people will be saved. And all of these people will be damned. Um, that's that's not that's that's not how it works. Um, I I believe, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that the correct approach would be chooses the elect. Um, we can't choose him, but um, the rest kind of go through their natural course. Is that the is that the right way to look at that? Yeah, that would be. Uh... Since you brought up the whole double predestination, that would be uh, that that infra versus super lapsarian view of of election. That's a that's a you said you weren't going to use those words. Uh, no, it's two yeah, episodes in, Mike, and you used them twice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it uh, well it, it because well it it's exactly what you're saying. It's it, it's like choosing it, the choosing from from the lump of clay. God is choosing out those that he is, is right. choosing to elect and is leaving the others to destruction. So yeah, that, that, that is, that is how you, right. I think you're putting that correctly yeah. is, is God is electing out of damnation. Right. Um, but we also, we also have to be careful there because some, some, some try to infer that there is, and I don't think I'm using the proper term. It's eternal, eternal regeneration or something along those lines that because you're elect, you're always elect, so you're saved eternally 
even 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 before you are converted or everything it's like an eternal conversion or something oh, right, like that right, yeah and uh and and that's not true because go back to when you were reading ephesians 2 uh it, it says that you were children of wrath even as the rest right so in, in ephesians 2 verse 3 uh you were dead so you were already over the pit of hell until you were regenerated and saved into Christ. So right. there's no, it, it's the eternality of everything that happens in salvation, the stuff that happens outside of time and space, the stuff that we can't comprehend. Right. So we have to use the best language we can to explain what is going on uh, with our, our limited faculties that we have. So yeah, right. no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure we'll revisit this some more once, once we come, you know, full circle to the uh, perseverance of the saints, right? Because that yeah. it, it also it also goes to tell you that you can't grieve the Holy Spirit and use free liberty, um, you know, uh, once you've uh, received salvation to just live any way you want. You don't you you don't have that that type of freedom in your life. And I really like it. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I really like the way that MacArthur talks about it too, because he, 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 he says there are no no ifs, ands, or buts. And of course, he he points to Peter about this. He says, even the elect will fall grievously. They will grieve the Holy Spirit in ways that are tremendous, but they will never reject their faith. Yeah, you know, and and I think um, Peter was a great example of this. Constantly, you know, constantly getting his nose smacked and putting his foot in his mouth. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, but okay, sorry, back on track. No, yeah. So, are we still talking about foreknowledge? Uh, yeah. What What else do you have on foreknowledge? Well, I want I, I wanted to touch on something because that word a lot of people don't get that word. Oh, right. And they, yeah. they, they interpret the term foreknowledge. And let me go to, let me go to Romans eight, chapter 29 real quick. Uh, it states, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And that, that one verse we could probably do 10 episodes on. Yeah. But, but, Foreknowledge is, is seems to be generally misunderstood by a lot of people, simply falling under the omnipotence of God. Right. Well, God knows right. everything. Well, duh. I mean, we know that. That's 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 yeah. common. That there's nothing there's nothing deeper, and you don't have to have any discussion about that. It's kind of like they want to view God as as like a fortune teller, or you know, he looks down the yeah. annals of history and sees what's going to happen, and then decides. Oh, well, yeah, that, yeah, and that's that's kind of what this gets at is one of those things is, yeah, he elects those that he knows will pick him, which is useless at that point. What's the point of electing? If they're going to pick him, there's no point of electing them because if, if yeah. they choose him, he doesn't need to choose them. But right. but I want to I want to get into a little bit the, the language here in the Greek again. When we get to the word predestined, so the four new the biblical concept of knowing that is being talked about here is about intimate knowledge and relationship. When this, this is the kind of knowing that we see in the beginning of the Gospels where it said Joseph did not know Mary. We're talking about an intimate connection here. And this foreknowledge of God with the elect is that before we ever were, God already knew us and loved us and had an intimate connection with us. Now, that's not something we can really understand and comprehend, but that's what the Bible talks about. And here in Romans 8.29, the word predestined, it's important to look at the Greek here. It's important to look at the, the original Greek for any of, of the New Testament. But here, the word for predestined is prooresin. Now, this has a, a lot of technicality to it, so I'm, I'm going to give a quick explanation of it. It's, it's, it's an aorist active indicative word and what that means an aorist tense and you and i were talking about i know that one for the show <laughs> yeah yeah that's you know the only one, one i know but so, i know one <laughs> <laughs> well it's good yeah the the aorist tense 
and there's there's multiple tenses. There's not just three like in English. The English the aorist tense in Greek is speaks of a past action that is completed. Now there there's still a little ambiguity that that is left there of of what is going on, but it is something that has been done and it's done in the past. So. The, the problem a lot of people have is that this foreknowledge and everything that is there, this this election and predestining is based on something that's happening in the future. But that's not the case. It's something that has been done in eternity past by God the Father. So there, there's no universal opportunity here. It's something that's done and it's it's already done and taken care of. So so this false, this incorrect understanding of foreknowledge is not God looking ahead and being like, okay, well, well, we'll elect him when the time comes. It's, no, this person is elected, and then I will bring them forth in the, in, in the proper time, and I will regenerate them and then and save them. So, yeah, there, there, there needs to be a lot of work done on people's understanding of what foreknowledge is. Right. And so, so you, also have, um, you also have others that would then say, okay, well, um, if... if God has already stacked the deck and he's already picked all his people. Well, then you don't have to do anything. Um, you know, oh, yeah, you know no. it's just like you just you, you just sit back and you're along for the ride. And um, not only is that unbiblical, but um, uh, it's just <laughs> it's just openly ignorant. Right. So now um, so a couple of reasons why why you should evangelize um, the, the first being you. Uh, you know, you're commanded to do so. Go into all the world and, and preach the gospel, right? And I heard it, and maybe, maybe you can confirm this for me, Mike. I heard that it's better interpreted as you are going into the world, preach the gospel. Uh, it may be. I'd, I'd have to look at that. Yeah. I, I, uh, but you may be, you may be right. I, I believe uh, um, Elder Marvin brought that up a couple of weeks ago, is, is it, was, it was not a... Okay, everybody become a missionary and go on trips, and that's all you ever do. It was an understanding that you would be going into the world in your daily life and that you are to preach the gospel as you are going on your way. Another reason for evangelism is uh, you're always guaranteed success. And, and it may be Amen. it may be positive success, but it also may be negative success because um, the, the word of God does not return void. Um, so when you evangelize to that person, mm -hmm. um, God will be glorified uh, if if they receive the effectual call rather than the general call um, and uh, turn to him. But he will also be glorified if that person rejects them because his judgment is is then on display as well. So so either way you look at it. The other aspect of it too and you know we've been talking about this a lot um, in our in our men's group and in our community groups at church is um, it's not your job to save anybody. It's your job to present the exactly. information and then the Holy Spirit goes to work. So uh, you should never feel um, some kind of way if if somebody does um, uh, say that they'll receive Christ or if somebody doesn't say they'll receive Christ other than, you know, I am putting the gospel out there and letting the Holy Spirit kind of do what he does. Yeah, I, you know, and you bring up a, a good point. And I think this is where this this is one of those areas where if you have a proper biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, it can do nothing other than give you a, a comfort that you can find nowhere else. And that is in if you believe evangelism is up to your savoir faire or your ability to speak, your charm. And you, you got to find the right words and that right formula and, and use this tone of voice and really hook the people. That is, if your understanding of evangelism is you have to convince these people into the kingdom, when they die apart from Christ, it's on you. And that, uh, I mean, that would be 
that is a heartbreaking stance to have because, I mean, you would go to bed every night, I would think, it would cause you to go to bed and think, how many people did I send to hell because I didn't do it right? Now, our responsibility, just like you said, our responsibility is to clearly and correctly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what right. we're supposed to do. We, we're, we're not allowed to get it wrong, and we're not allowed to change it, but we are supposed to clearly articulate the gospel. And from there, through those means, and, and that's one of the things is, you know, they charge Calvinists with, well, if everybody's elect, what's the point of doing anything? Well, like you said, we're commanded to do this, and God uses means, uses people to accomplish his ends. That's part of his, that's part of how he operates, is he uses us to accomplish yeah. his ends. And it's the same with, with evangelism. And, and that takes a load off of our shoulders when we do exactly what we're commanded. If those people still turn up their nose to God, it's not on us. If we've done everything we're supposed to do correctly, it's not on us. It, and, it, and it's one of those it's one of those mysteries too. Like, does God actually need us? No, no, no. Because if He needed, yeah, if He, but he, he still yeah, uses our absolutely. feeble, yeah, yeah. If He attempts. needed us, He wouldn't be God. Prayer. Yeah. How does prayer work? I don't know. It, it, it's the MacArthur shrug, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do it because I'm told to do it. And I'm, I do it because God says it works. How he works that out? No idea. You know, um, and, and evangelism yep. is, the, is the same way. And, it, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of why, you know, Paul takes, takes the approach that he does. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that if it was Paul sitting alone in a field with a grasshopper, he was preaching. You know, he, <laughs> Paul understood that he didn't know who was chosen and who was not chosen. And so he, he, he preached nonstop. He prayed nonstop. He knew these things worked. He didn't know how they worked, but he did them. He was commanded to do them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I kind of jokingly said you, you, you evangelize as if, as if election isn't a thing. Right. Because you don't know. So you you preach until you can't preach. You 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 share the gospel until you can't anymore. You you do it until you're blue in the face because you don't know where and there God is using that to plant the seed that later on down the road uh, God will will cause the growth to bring this person to salvation. You just don't know. But the one thing you can rest in with this this biblical understanding is that like you said, it's guaranteed success. You, the, the the elect will be saved. You can't fail at that. You can't stop that from happening. Right. But you can, you can, the only difference is, is are, are you going to be useful to the kingdom and do it? Or are you just going to sit on the sidelines and let God have somebody else do it? So like right. you said, we're commanded to be doing this. We can't sit on our laurels and be like, well, God elected him. Somebody, he'll figure it out. Right. Well, he uses us to get that done. Yeah. So you're exactly right. You know, and, and, and as we, as we kind of move into our conclusion here, it's, it's 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 interesting how uh, you know just just touching on total depravity, you know, going back and, and, and thinking about the different things we've talked about thus far, it's almost impossible not to overlap or bump up against the other elements of the doctrines of grace as you go through them. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. It's 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 just it's one. It's like a it's it's like an inter. It's a vine that just is intertwined with itself. You can't separate these five points from each right. other. It's, it's really one doctrine with five aspects to yeah. it. It is five facets to this, and it, that's why it, it falls under the sovereignty of God in salvation, and these are the five aspects of it. You're absolutely right. right. So yeah, wind, kind of winding this down, you know, why is the doctrine of total depravity or absolute inability important? Well, number one, it's consistent with Scripture. And I think that a point needs to be made here, and this goes for really any any doctrine that we're talking about uh, or theological stances. And uh, this is something I've learned in the, in the time I've had in, in my education recently. And each semester, it's driven home more and more is that we have got to have a good biblical theology. Right. What what is biblical theology? It's taking the whole of Scripture 
from Genesis to Revelation and understanding it as one continuous narrative, one continuous expression of redemptive history, and you're taking the thing as a whole. Now, yes, there's there's separate books, there's separate, I guess not chapters, because when it was written, it was just one, almost one run, run on sentence. Yeah, with no periods. But, but there's separate books, <laughs> yeah, with no periods. Praise God for the interpreters and the, the uh, uh, <laughs> translators. Yes, there's individual books, there's individual sections that, that, that focus on certain parts of redemptive history, but it had one author, and that is God Almighty, delivered by the Holy Spirit. So it's going to be cohesive, so you need to take the thing as a whole. Right. If you grab one verse, you can come out an Arminian. Right. If you take a, a handful of verses, you can come out an Arminian and have a synergistic understanding of salvation. But you can't ignore the rest of Scripture. And the same thing goes, uh, same thing goes for Calvinists. You can grab these verses right. and, and come to a Calvinistic understanding, but you can't ignore the other verses. So you have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. When, when it says the whole world, what is that talking about? When it says God is patient, doesn't want anyone, uh, anyone to perish, what is that talking about? You have to take it as a whole. So uh, having a good biblical, having a biblical theological approach to uh, interpreting and reading Scripture is absolutely essential, and that's why uh, I truly have come to the com- the belief and conclusion that the doctrines of grace is are a biblical doctrine. It's it's not a man-made doctrine. It's it's erroneously called Calvinism. It's it's biblical is is right. what it is. And, uh, right. Uh, another thing is that it shows our need for regeneration. The uh, total depravity shows us that we are broken. We are dead in our sins. We can't do anything to save ourselves. It is absolutely clear. There's uh, No one seeks after God. So the fact that all of our faculties have been touched and corrupted by sin shows we can't claw ourselves out of, out of hell. We need someone to raise us from death. And that is Jesus Christ. That is the only, only hope we have. He's the only name in heaven or on earth by which we can be saved. So it shows our need for somebody outside of ourselves, and that is God, to regenerate us and save us. And finally, hand in hand with that, it shows our dependence upon God. We can't do this. We're dead. We can't do it. Well, we need God. And and that's one of the things I talked about is is that friend who told me when you when you understand what election is and you understand God's sovereignty and salvation it makes you love him even more because he looked he looked down on you this dead wretch who only thinks about themselves and can do no good works and yet God has God has chosen you as one of his people he has adopted you into the family of God Astounding isn't the word for it. There's, you need a bigger word, but the, the, it's nothing short of astounding. Uh, just like we read in Ephesians two, but God, right? It will and, and it, rich in mercy. It, it, it truly is the uh, the appropriate use of the word miracle. Yeah, that you yeah. know, in, in our defiled and wretched state, God says, "Nope, I love him. I love her. They're mine." It 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 goes back to it goes back to the covenant promise of I will be their God and they will be my people. Yeah. And when you understand, you, you look, especially in John, they are my sheep. They hear the, they hear my voice and they come to me Uh, and we'll get into that stuff in later episodes. Uh, It just, it's, it's something else to understand that that you have been chosen and you have been saved and through nothing of your own. And now you are part of the people of God. It's, it's amazing. That's right. So we, uh, well, we went a lot over on this show. We, we were kind of aiming for like 35 minute shows. I don't know if this is a sign of things to come, but this is where we are. So, <laughs> so the, uh, next, next episode we're, we're going to be, we're working, uh, past the, uh, the tip of the tulip. We're going to be going into unconditional election, which is, uh, also going to be a fun, uh, fun topic to cover. So, uh, until then, thank you for everybody for listening. Uh, God bless you. We have our, our show contact info in the show notes, as well as links to various resources uh, that we have mentioned and used in this show. 
thank you, Mike. Thank for thank you for being here and uh, doing this with oh, me. Always, always fun, brother. Always fun. So uh, until next time, thank you everybody for listening and God bless. <laughs>